As I sat up here on the front row this morning, I couldn't help but think of the story of a visiting preacher who, like me, was sitting on the front row during the praise and worship service. And, um, you know, he's preparing his heart for, for preaching and, and, and making sure that he was ready to preach the word. And so throughout most of the singing, his eyes were closed. He was singing with all of his might. And, and then when it came time to preach, he got up on, on the stage and turned around and, and the place was empty. Everybody had left. And, and there was one guy sitting in the back, one older guy, and, and he said, well, I guess they just didn't want to hear me preach. And the man said, oh, I think they would have been fine to hear you preach, but your mic was on during the singing. And so I was made very sure that they had me muted all, uh, all through that. So if I have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I'm sorry, my name is Kyle Smith, and I'm not a visiting preacher. In fact, I'm neither a, a preacher nor am I visiting. Um, my wife and I, Nan, and, uh, and our grandson, Walt, we've been covenant members here for, um, for quite some time. And uh, I'm just a regular Jesus lover like most of you. And so uh, I'm just really, really grateful that the elders have asked me to, to come and just share my heart. I'm grateful for that opportunity today, and I, I thank you for being here. So here at Renewal, this Bible, this book that we spend so much time preaching about and studying and meditating on, this, we believe, is the very Word of God, and so it's right that we should do so. I also think that at Renewal, it's been, it's been made very clear, that, and we all know, that this Bible is a single, wonderful, continuous, unified story from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation. You know, we, we tend to divide it into an Old and New Testament, and, and that's okay, but it's actually somewhat of an artificial distinction. It's really one long story. And, and that story is, is, of course, a beautiful story. But like any story, there is a, a narrative arc in the Bible. There are certain themes that go through the Bible. And I would suggest to you that there are three major themes in the Bible. There's the theme of creation, the fall, and then God's redemption. And it, and it works like this. Creation is, is really just the first two chapters of Genesis. That's the creation story. And then we read about the fall when Adam and Eve fell into sin and plunged the world into sin and darkness. That's Genesis 3. And then in Genesis 4, all the way to the end of Revelation is the story of God's redemption. Isn't that amazing? 99.7% of the Bible is the story of God's redemption. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and all but three talk about God's redemption. And I would ask you also this morning, if you ever thought about it like this, of those chapters, that redemptive story, there are 31,122 verses in that section of Scripture. Of all of that part of the Bible... Have you ever thought about what would be the most significant, the most important verse in all of that story? Now, I know, and we all know, that every verse is important. This is God's inspired word. It, it, every word is important, every verse. It is the infallible, inerrant word of God. We believe that. 
But if there were one verse that if you took it out, it would leave a major hole in that redemptive story. Have you ever thought about that? Well, this lesson today is going to be about the verse that I think is that most important verse. And we're going to get there. I'm not going to tell you just yet, because we have some background work to do before we get there. So I'd like for you, if you would, to just go on a little journey with me. We're going to go back in time and to a different place on the other side of the world. Where first, our first stop will be about 2,000 years ago. And we find ourselves on top of Mount Moriah. Now, we don't know for sure, but we think Mount Moriah is the same mountain that Abraham ascended when he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. But on the day we arrive at Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah is the upper end of the bustling city of Jerusalem. And on top of that mountain is Herod's temple. And Herod's temple is one of the most amazing structures. I wish we could still see it, but it's no longer there. Herod's temple was one of the architectural wonders of the world. It was, it was enormous. And on the day we arrive, there are hundreds of thousands of people on the temple mount. Because it's Passover. And as we look across all of that mass of humanity, off in the distance, we can see the altar in front of the temple. And, and there at the altar stands the high priest. And the high priest is standing in front of a lamb, and he's got a knife in his hand. And we know that that sacrifice he's about to make is a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the question that I want to ask, is, what is that about? Why is he doing that? What is all of this blood about? Did they really think that sacrificing an animal would somehow wipe away their sin? We know that the author of Hebrews, we're going to get some slides up here. Thank you. We know that the author of Hebrews said this. He said, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But is that just a New Testament perspective? Is that a new covenant perspective on that concept? The question is, what did they think when they were offering those sacrifices? To answer that question, we're going to need to go back another 2,000 years. So when we go back, we're going to find ourselves now, not far from Jerusalem, a little bit to the south, in the Negev Desert. And at this point in time, it's not called Israel, it's called the land of Canaan. And when we arrive there, we meet a man whose name is Abram. We all know that Abram would eventually have his name changed to Abraham. And Abraham is a really interesting character. I don't know if you realize this. He was born in the, in the land of the Chaldeans, in the city of Ur, and that's where he came from. But God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and brought him to this land of Canaan. The question is, why did he do that? It wasn't because of Abraham's faith. And we know that because Joshua 24.2 tells us that Abraham and his father were pagans. They worshipped other gods. And yet, for some reason, God chose Abraham and brought him to the land of Canaan. And then, once he's there, he begins to have a series of conversations 
with Abraham. And we read about those conversations in Genesis 12 through Genesis 15. And as part of those conversations, Abraham or God makes three major promises to Abraham. I can sum up those promises like this. He promised him descendants, he promised him land, and he promised him Messiah. Okay, those were the three promises, and those verses look something like this. Next slide. From Genesis 15, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He said, Abraham, just look at the stars. You can't even count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. That's my promise to you. And then he said, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Abraham, look around you. As far as you can see, this land is going to be your land for you and your descendants from now on. That was promise number two. And then there's promise number three. And this came a little earlier in Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So how did Abraham respond to that, to those promises? But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, I don't know what you would have said. The God of the universe just made a series of promises to you. I don't know what you would have said, but probably I would have said something like, okay, God, thank you. Appreciate it. Even though in my heart, I might not have believed him. But that's not what Abraham did. Abraham and his descendants have a tendency to just say what they think, especially when talking to God. Wouldn't that be great if we could be more like that? Think, speaking of Abraham's descendants, thinking, think of Tavia. Do you remember Tavia, Fiddler on the Roof, the musical? Okay, Tavia was a Jewish dairy farmer in Russia. And Tavia, in that story, if you'll recall, had a number of conversations with God, didn't he? Would it spoil some vast eternal plan? Right? If I were a wealthy man, I'm not going to sing it because I want you to stay. <laughs> but you get the point. That's, that's Abraham. That's the kind of conversation that he's having with God. He's not being disrespectful. He's just being honest. He's saying, God, I'm, I'm 80 years old. I don't have any children. And you're telling me I'm going to have all these descendants? How can I know for sure? Wouldn't it be great if we had a little more honesty like that with God? I mean, think about it. How honest are we with God when we talk to him? It's not like he doesn't know what we're thinking anyway. You know, I think sometimes for me, it's like, it's like when you, you see that there, there's a cookie missing from the cookie jar. And you see your three-year-old child standing there with crumbs all over his face and chocolate all over his hands, and his mouth full, and you say, did you take a cookie? And his eyes get big, I've never seen a cookie. That's what, that's what we're like with God when we're not honest with God in our prayers. We could learn a lot from Abraham. 
So here we are, and God has made these promises, and Abraham has said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure, God, what, what, uh, if I can believe you. And so God answers like this. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now again, if this was you or me hearing this, on a good day, we probably would have said, okay, and we'd have gone and gathered up the animals, and then we would have said, okay, God, now what? But that's not what Abraham did. Abraham knew exactly what to do. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. You see, Abraham was a product of his culture. And when God told him to go and bring those animals, he knew exactly what God meant. He knew that God was saying, Abraham, I am going to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And Abraham knew, knew how this worked. And so he went and got the animals, and as it says, he cut them in half. Now, we're going to have to kind of stop and pause on this for a little bit, because to really understand these next verses, it's very important that we understand exactly what's going on in this covenant. Well, first of all, there's the setup. If you think setting up in here on Sunday mornings is difficult, wait till you hear what Abraham had to do, okay? And Abraham's setup, you have to get these animals. First of all, you find a, it's like a, a ditch or a drainage area where the two sides of, of the ground slope together to kind of a, a trough or a drainage area at the bottom. Okay, that's, that's where you do this. And you take these animals, you cut them in half, you lay the halves along the side of this ditch so that all of the blood and guts and nastiness runs down into the bottom of that ditch. Okay, that's the setup. And the covenant itself works like this. There's always two parties. There's a greater party and there's a lesser party. And the greater party says... Okay, this is what I will promise you. This is what I'm going to do. And then the greater party takes off his sandals and walks through that blood and says, and if I fail to keep my promise, this is what you can do to me. In other words, you can kill me and walk in my blood. And then it's time for the lesser party. And the lesser party does the same. The lesser party takes off his sandals, walks through the blood, and says, and here's what I promise you, and if I fail to keep my promise, this is what you can do to me. So let's pause for just a bit longer on this verse because I think it's actually a little humorous. It says, and he brought them all these, cut them in half like it was nothing right? Think about this. Here's Abraham. He's 80 years old. As far as we know, he's by himself. Okay. Cutting a pigeon and a turtle dove in half is not a big deal. A ram and a goat, that's a little bit more of a problem. But now Abraham is standing there in front of a 1,500-pound heifer, and he's got a knife. Somehow, he's got to cut that thing in half. And we don't mean like this. It's stem to stern, right and left half. That's how they did it. Poor guy doesn't doesn't need a knife, he needs a chainsaw or a lightsaber or something, right? He's got to cut this thing in half. He must have been absolutely exhausted by the time he got done sacrificing this cow and laying the two halves along the side. So that's what happened. 
So that's, that's the setup, all right? So how does this covenant work between God and Abraham? What's that like? Okay, there's two parties. There's a greater party. Obviously, that's God. And there's the lesser party. So what is it that God is promising Abraham? Well, we've already talked about that. God has said, I'm going to give you descendants, I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you Messiah. Okay? That's God's promise. Well, what does God expect from Abraham? What is Abraham's part of this deal? Well, that's easy. God said, Abraham, all I expect of you is that you walk before me and be blameless. All you have to do is never sin. Just be perfect. So does God have anything to be afraid of in this covenant? Well, God doesn't. God's going to keep his promise, right? I mean, he's the sovereign God of the universe. He makes a promise, he's going to be able to keep it. It would be sinful for God to make a promise and not keep it. He's obviously going to do that. It would be unthinkable for God to break a promise. So God's not scared. What about Abraham? You think Abraham's scared? Abraham knows that he'll never be able to keep this promise. No way is Abraham ever going to live a sinless life. And we know he's scared because of the next verse. It said, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Dreadful and great darkness is a Hebrew euphemism that means he's scared out of his mind. So did God walk through the blood? Let's read verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So when I started this lesson, I told you I was going to talk about the verse that I think is the single most important verse in the entire redemptive story of the Bible. I think this is it. Let me explain. First, we need to talk about this smoking fire pot. Now, that's not part of our culture. Let me explain what a smoking fire pot is. So in, in that Bedouin culture, the woman of the household, at the end of the day, before going to bed, would take the coals from the fire and gather up the coals and put them into a little clay pot, a little clay pot with holes around the top. And those coals would sit there in the pot all night long, and they would smolder and smoke, and the, the smoke would come out the top of the pot. And the next morning, then, when it was time to build the breakfast fire, she could dump out the coals, and there would be hot coals to start the morning breakfast fire. Okay, that's a, a, a fire pot, and that's what this is referring to. Um, we hear it in other places in Scripture. In Proverbs 31, for example, when it says, an excellent wife who can find, her fire never goes out at night. Now, guys, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. That verse may not mean exactly what you've always thought it meant. It's talking about a fire pot, okay? Fire pot. That is the smoking fire pot, okay? So, um, so that's the fire pot. And in this story, obviously, there's symbolism going on, right? Um, and... And by the way, uh, this is what we call a theophany. A theophany is a physical representation of God. 
like the, the burning bush with Moses. Well, this is a theophany. It's symbolic, obviously. And it says, the smoking fire pod and the flaming torch pass between the pieces. So the smoking fire pod is walking through that blood path that Abraham created. Well, that smoking fire pod is a representation of God. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that the smoking fire pot represents God? Well, we know that for two reasons. We know it first because the greater party always goes first. The smoking fire pot goes first. God's obviously the greater party, so that would make sense in this covenant. But there's a more important reason. And that is because in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scripture, smoke, when it's used as a symbol, always represents God. It never represents man. So the smoking fire pot is a symbol of God, and the picture is this. Here we have holy God taking off his sandals and walking through animal blood and saying, Abraham, I made you three promises. You asked me, how can you know for sure? Abraham, if I fail to keep my promise, if I don't give you descendants, land, and Messiah, you can do this to me. Okay, now it's Abraham's turn. And you might think, since Abraham is the lesser party and the lesser party goes second, that now that flaming torch would represent Abraham walking through because it's his turn. But here we have a problem. Because again, in Hebrew scripture, fire, when it's used as a symbol, always represents God, not man. So a flaming torch has to be a symbol for God. And so the picture here is that we have God a second time walking through that path. And so the picture is this. Here we have Abraham, 80-year-old, trembling, scared-to-death Abraham, who walks up to the edge of that path, and he knows that if he puts one foot in that blood, he's a dead man, because he'll never be able to keep that promise. So there's Abraham getting ready to take that step, and it's, if, it's as if God walks up, puts his hand on Abraham's chest, pushes him away, and says, No, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. And God takes off his sandals and walks through that blood. And he says, Abraham, if you or your descendants break your promise, if you ever sin, you can do this to me. And God promised Abraham and you and me he said, my blood will pay the price for your sin. So did Abraham have descendants? More than we can count. And 500 years later, when God was bringing his people, Abraham's descendants, out of Egypt, and what we call the Exodus, he pulls Moses aside and says to him, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that the high priest offers sacrifices for the sins of the people. I want him to do that every day, twice a day. At 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I want the high priest to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. 
And that's exactly what they did for the next 1,500 years. And why did they do that? Did they do it out of obedience because that's what God said to do? Absolutely. Did they do it because they were acutely aware of their own sin? Yes. Did they do it because they believed that the blood of that animal would somehow wipe away their sin? No. They did it because God wanted them twice a day, every day, to make a sacrifice and say, God, remember your promise. You promised us. Take away our sins. Send us Messiah. And that's why they did it. So now let's move ahead another 1,500 years. And now we find ourselves in the middle of a pasture and it's nighttime. And we hear some lambs off in the distance tucked in for the night. And we see a smattering of young shepherds sitting around a campfire. And not far away, in the little town of Bethlehem, is a baby lying in a manger in a stable meant for animals. And an angel appears. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel saying, I, I know you're afraid, but I'm, I'm bringing you great news. Now, he didn't say this, but I think what he was thinking is, you remember that promise God made to Abraham 2,000 years ago? Just sit tight. He's about to do it. And the next verse. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, I don't know how much that heavenly host really understood. They, did they understand? Did they know how this was going to go down? Did they know what was going to really happen to that baby? I don't know. Maybe they had mixed emotions about all of this. But I do know that they were praising God with all of their heart because they understood that God was about to reveal the glory of his grace for all the world to see. That's why God created this world in the first place that everyone would understand the glory and the majesty of his grace. And so they were praising God with all their hearts. So we're going to make one more stop. We're going to go forward another 33 years or so. And we're going to land back where we started, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. And the day we arrive is a Friday. It's not just any Friday. Passover. And as we arrive, that Temple Mount is filled with people, hundreds of thousands of people. We look across this sea of humanity, and it's almost three o'clock in the afternoon. And as we stand there, all of a sudden, the entire crowd just falls silent. There's this hushed silence across the whole crowd, and everybody turns and is looking up towards the altar, and there at the altar stands the high priest. He's in front of a lamb, and he's got a knife in his hand. He's waiting for the shofar to sound to say that it's 3 o'clock and time for the sacrifice. 
And at that moment, outside the city, on a hill, on a cross, hangs Jesus of Nazareth. And he's almost dead. And then the shofar sounds, it's three o'clock, the knife falls, the blood is shed, and Jesus takes his final breath and in a loud voice says, it's finished! And God kept his promise. A promise that he made to a Bedouin former pagan in the desert of the Negev 2,000 years before. Church family, here we are at Advent season, and we're, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. And absolutely we should. That is, a, that is a good and wonderful thing. Just like that heavenly host praised God on the, outside of, of Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born. Absolutely, that's what we should do. But please let us never forget during this wonderful season why he came. He came to redeem us. He came to die on a cross and be raised again. He came to fulfill a promise that God made. Yes, it was a plan that God put in place before the beginning of time. It was a promise that God made to a man named Abraham now 4,000 years ago. Why do we have hope in this season? Why do we celebrate the hope that we have? We have hope because we serve a God who keeps his promises. Always. And if God would keep that promise, if God would keep that promise that he made to Abraham, the promise, the ultimate promise, that cost him his only son, then we know that God will keep every promise he ever made to you and me.